Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm your host, Zach Childs, and today we're talking with Russ Paul. Russ Paul has an amazingly uh, ver you know, long and varied career, everything from being a sideman with major artists like Don Williams, or being in a, a signed band like Great Plains in the early 90s, uh, work playing on demos, uh, touring work, session work. He's played with everyone and their dog. <laughs> You know, it's it's not many people can go out and play on Austin City Limits, you know, Dent with Dan Arbach, and then play pedal steel guitar with uh, Vince Gill for three years, and just all these different things. He's also had a, a career as a uh, as a as a solo artist. This is his <laughs> his album. Yeah, just see <laughs> just if you can find one not, of those. <laughs> not what I expected. So that uh, that Russ actually did as a. Uh, yeah, you know, just as a gift to some to his friends. So uh, yeah, so this is kind of a, a collector's item. All right, so uh, let's let's get started. Let's let's talk. Let's just go back to the beginning and let's let's. What what was your initial you know kind of impetus to to get into the guitar in the first place? Well, I have two older sisters, and this was back in probably 1963. They were into folk music that was the they called the yeah. big folk scare of yeah. the early 60s yeah. and uh peter paul and mary theodore Pickel, pete seeger all that they were way into that and my uh my sister nancy had a uh, silver tone one of the you know the ten dollar model you know uh, guitars and i picked it up and learned like an e and an a chord and we we were in 4-h so we did a trio of uh, at the Share the Fun Festival of, of if I had a hammer and I would just remember this the other day is I didn't know how to play the song but what I did was at the beginning of the song I went e e a a a and then we sang the song a cappella because I didn't know how to play along with singing but I you know I played the introduction on the guitar well this was in '63 well I believe it was in '64 I hope I have the year right when the Beatles were in Ed Sullivan right. And I saw that, and already being a guitar player, it it was basically like a a, a brick in the forehead to me. It was, uh, I, 
I w the decision was made that night, that Sunday night. The next day I came home from school, took my sister's guitar down into my dad's workshop and glued knobs on it. And I think I even might have taken a hacksaw and made a, a cutout on it just because I didn't know that an electric guitar had an amplifier and all that. I just right. knew that it had knobs on it. So you tried to add a cutaway and knobs oh, yeah. to the no, acoustic I was, guitar? Yeah, I was already yeah. hot-rodding guitars, you yeah. know, day two there. So. Yeah. But yeah, and that was it. You know, it's pretty simple. And wow. I mean, there's a number of people that, I was just at the right age, that that whole thing was just, it was, a, it was a, the big boom. First paid gig. First paid gig was probably uh, my same sister who I, I stole the guitar from got me in with uh, a band at our high school. They were all about four years older than me, but she said my little brother plays guitar. So I went to the rehearsal and then they ended up making me the lead player. And we played uh, somebody's party, I remember. You know, like a Saturday night, and we probably made five bucks a piece. But we were playing uh, uh, songs by Paul Revere and the Raiders and the yeah. Animals, all the garage rock yeah. stuff. Yeah. At what point do you get to Nashville? Mm. Much later, like 1984, 85. And so what were you doing in that time before Nashville? <sighs> well, I was playing... I'm from Minneapolis, a suburb of Minneapolis, and I was playing in this band, the Unlimited Five, with the guys, the older guys. And then uh, when I was about 14, I got a phone call uh, from this guy. He said, we have a country band, and our cousin is off on a drunk somewhere, and he, he's not playing guitar with us tonight. Can you come and play guitar with us? I said, if you can come and pick me up, I don't drive. So... Uh, I went and played with them, and I got the gig. And uh, so for a couple of years, I played with this band called the Rhythm Rascals. And we played in little bars and taverns all around the western end of Minneapolis. And you also picked up the pedal steel. How did that come about? Well, playing with that band, we had a thing. Every Sunday night, we played at a ballroom about 80 miles west of Minneapolis. And the guy who owned the ballroom had a hookup with some booking agent, so every Sunday night, some Nashville act would be coming through. Tammy okay. Wynette, uh, Ernest Tubb, Hank Williams Jr. Before his, before the accident and all that. Well, we would we would do an opening set for whoever, and then they'd play a show. Then we'd do another little set, and then they'd do a second show. We were playing one night, and Wynn Stewart was there from California, and. He had this guy playing this thing, and it was Ralph Mooney. Oh, my goodness. Well, we played our set, and Ralph came over to me, and he said, Kid, you're playing the wrong instrument. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you're over there playing that Gretsch with all them rubber band strings, bending strings all over the place. He said, this thing will bend the strings for you. And I said, wow, well, will you show me? And he said, sure. So afterwards, uh, I, after we got done that night, uh, he sat me down and showed me just the basic EA change on his, his old Fender pedal steel. And I picked that up. And uh, so steel guitar kind of found me. Yeah. I, would, I didn't really know what it was. Yeah, that's that's pretty, pretty incredible, you know, because Wynn Stewart was such a, 
a big part of that, you know, the birth oh, of the yeah, whole Bakersfield yeah. oh, scene. Yeah. And all the all those guys played in his band, you know, even right. you know Merle and, and Roy Nichols and oh, all these yeah, cats. Yeah. And so, getting to to see Win with with uh, Ralph Mooney, know, with Ralph yeah. Mooney who else? Amazing. You know, I didn't even know who else was with him. It was probably yeah. an all star cast. I yeah. didn't know. Wow. But the next day, the bass player who had a driver's license, we skipped out of class. And I heard there was a used pedal steel at a pawn shop in North Minneapolis, kind of in the bad side of town. So we went down there and I bought a uh, homemade little 10 string pedal steel guitar for probably 120 bucks or something. And that was Monday and Friday I was playing it on the gig. I mean, very simple stuff, but uh, I, my system is wired for that. I like, I like, my dad was a machinist, so I've got a, a bit of a mechanical thing inside me. Right. So the, 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 the idea of playing with your hands and then being able to do mechanical moves in the change, that's very natural to me, so. Because that's, that's really the impediment for a lot of guitar players yes. that try to pick up the, the steel yeah. is the, the fact that, you know, you have these pedals that are changing the pitches on multiple strings right, at a time. Right, right. And it's, it's like all of a sudden, oh, I've got a different tuning now all of yeah. a sudden. It's like I'm shifting tuning almost. Well, and, yeah. and I think in a lot of ways they're just overthinking it, you know, yeah. where I clearly, I mean, from the moment he showed me the first pedal change, it, it all, I could clearly see it in my mind how that worked. And, yeah. and I, I can't play lap steel. Uh, everybody, you know, people are always showing me their lap steels. Like, isn't yeah. this cool? And I go, and it, to me, it's like uh, a dog looking at a TV. I just don't, you know, I, yeah. they're kind of cool looking old instruments, but they, yeah. they, uh, they don't appeal to me at all because they don't have the mechanical change. Right. So. So take us to, uh, how, how did you, uh, you know, what inspired you to move to Nashville? Uh, I uh, lived in Minneapolis for many years, played clubs uh, all through the, I got out of high school around 72 and immediately was getting into club bands and playing uh, six and seven nights a week. There was so much work up there in the early 70s. The nightclubs were all over, they were paying well. There was country, I was playing country bands, disco bands, hard rock bands, all kinds of bands. And yeah. I was working all the time. And I did that till the mid 80s. And then I realized I need to get out of this town because I'm sort of a big frog in a small pond. And I saw that you could become relatively complacent there and probably get by and I thought, well, I'll probably drink myself to death if I stay here. So I needed to get out of the bars. So I came to Nashville. Just, uh, uh, I figured I, w I would like to play records, on records. I always read the back of the albums and I knew more who played on the records than most of the guys did that played on them. Right. You know, I was just one of those geeks. So came in about 84. Was Michael Johnson, was that one of the first major gigs you had? Yeah, that was, when I first came, a friend of mine, Danny Parks, had been playing with Dickie Betts, and he hooked me up with Dickie. Dickie was living in Nashville at the time, and uh, I went and played uh, through my friend Danny. I went overdubbed on a country song, 
what was it? it's too late to go home early was the name of the song and i played steel on it and a week later his management called and said dickie's putting a band together to go out and do some playing do you want to come along so that was my first ever time on a bus it was and, with dickie Betts. yeah so for better part of a year uh i played out with dickie betts and that band had john yudkin on on fiddle and yeah. uh uh, uh, Johnny Neal on keyboards. It was a really good band, and we had all the parts, all the almond parts worked out in three harmon three part harmony with Dickie and the fiddle and the piano and the the steel. So, wow. So that was pretty cool. That was That's my cool. first sort of big time gig. And and so I get, does Michael Johnson come after that? Yeah, we uh, we had a, a a group of few of us that were. Um, doing starting to do demos together demo recordings together and uh brent mayer the produce michael's producer and the judd's producer right. heard one of our demos and he started hiring us to do publishing demos for him and then michael johnson who he was producing heard us and he was going to do a uh whole summer of opening for Alabama and Restless Heart. So we went out and toured with him with a whole five-piece band with drums and bass. And right. Michael had a couple hit records at the time. Yeah, like Bluer Than Blue. Yeah, and yeah. Right. And uh, then we stripped it down to a trio with just me on acoustic guitar and uh, Jack Sundrud on bass and Michael. And we had this trio, which was really cool. And it was a vocal trio. We And we did like... Uh, we did a bunch of television. We did Austin City Limits and all that with Michael. And that was great. That's one of the best bands I've ever been in. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, I've heard a number of people talk, you know, really fondly about playing in uh, simple trios like that. Trios, yeah. uh, no, the power of three is, is uh, I mean, I saw Jimi Hendrix in Minneapolis. I didn't get to see Cream, but uh, I've always loved the, the concept of the trio. And it's funny because actually, you, when you first, especially if you downsize from a bigger band, you think, well, I've got to play more to compensate. And it's actually, you play less. You just play, play with broader strokes. Each player plays less with broader strokes and you get this big sound. So no, trios are amazing. And, uh, and at what point did Don Williams come into the picture? Uh, we... Uh, with Michael Johnson, we uh, uh, did a tour of uh, Western Canada, opening for Don, and uh, I already knew Dave Pomeroy was playing bass right. and Steve Turner was playing drums, and so the first day up in um, Winnipeg at Soundcheck, uh, I was hanging out with those guys, and I met Garth Fundus that day, and I met Billy Sanford that day, who was playing lead guitar. I ended up marrying Billy's daughter and, and uh, uh, getting you know very close with all those people. And uh, the next season, Garth Fundus called me and asked if I'd be interested in playing with Don. So you know that was my dream gig, and that was such a great band because we played so soft. I learned how to play at session volume with that band, just how to play whisper soft, let the PA do the work. And it was like playing like a, with a little chamber orchestra. So I played with Don, I think three years. Wow. And it was, it was such a great gig. And I played, 
Oh, I, I sang a lot of harmony. I played uh, acoustic rhythm, played steel. There was times when Pomeroy, uh, something happened, so I uh, played bass with him a couple nights. I just kind of was the, the pinch hitter for the, the Don yeah. Williams band for a couple years. Yeah, so. I found a, a, last night, in fact, I found a clip of uh, of you and Don Williams and Pomeroy just playing as a, as right, a trio. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was great. So, yeah. yeah, no, Don was great, Don was great. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know that that's some interesting acts to you know, you know when you have Dickie Betts, Don Williams, you know Michael Johnson. What are some things that you learned from each of them? You know, out on, out on the road, you because know, I you know Dickie has such a, a an interesting reputation. Uh, well and well deserved. Uh, <laughs> Dickie at the time, he had just he was living in Nashville. He had just been through Cumberland Heights, so he was on the straight and narrow. Wow. The band wasn't, and the, yeah. you know, and, the, and I was, you know, young and full of it, and uh, first time on a bus, so we're, there was a, it was a it was a pretty wild ride, and Dickie's behaving all of this time. Wow! Uh, but uh, Dickie was was great. He's he was depending on his mood. He was either the best that there is. He may, you know, he wrote his own book. You know, there's the Dickie Betts style that the the two humbuckers together through a uh, uh, 50 or 100 watt marshal through jbls just yeah. this beautiful clean but yet saturated sound and uh, or if he was uh, uninspired he might just uh, take off his guitar in the middle of a song and walk off and leave the band up there and not finish the set so it was just one or the other yeah. yeah, but uh, I don't know. I learned about how to play harmony with parts, you know, because they had all that Almond Brothers stuff. We we do Blue Sky and right. just to get all those cool harmonies, you know. So I learned a lot about that from yeah. him. Uh, Michael Johnson was a uh, actually spent time in Spain training as a classical guitarist. So he played in classical position, full hand. It was like right. playing with a piano player because he'd be playing upper lines and lower lines. And uh, I learned a lot about... Uh, so what I did with him was play acoustic. I had a Takamini, which was at the time the best electric acoustic right. you could get. And I learned about, I call it feathering, where you just play this rhythmic wash because... He was playing everything. He could go out and play by himself, solo. He had all the parts there. Jack and I were just just kind of rounding out what he did. So I, I learned how to play parts that did not get in the way of what he was doing, but yet support it. You know, right. it, was, it, was, it was just a lot of really kind of light strumming, just a wash. And with, with Don, you said you learned how to play, you know, quietly. What else did you learn working with Don? Oh, man. Oh, just... Uh, dynamics. Part of the quiet thing was playing with dynamics and uh, uh, listening to the lyrics. You know, we, uh, you know, at the time I started recording with him too, and so that was pretty heavy going in to record with him. And Garth Fund is producing, and I really learned. I, I started because uh, sometimes Kenny Malone would be playing drums, and he would not ask for a chart but a lyric sheet. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, well, the lyrics are really, really important. So especially for a steel guitar player, uh, 
we're there is just to, uh, an, an emotional once in a while to do a little emotional emphasis or sometimes triggering off a lyric, you know, without being too corny about it. But sometimes just a little harmonic on the right lyric is very important. So people are sometimes surprised when I hear a song once and I start playing off the lyrics, you know. And it's just, uh, I think that a lot of that came from Don. Because his songs were all so well written. You know, he had the best songs. Yeah, absolutely. Then we get up to Great Plains, right, right? Where you know, so so now you've been you've been you've been a club musician, right? You've moved to Nashville. You've played with you know major major artists, right, right? And now you're you know part of a signed band, right, right? And uh, you know during a time when country music was exploding, right, and right, the, right. the labels were you know signing a lot. They had big yeah, rosters yeah, right, of, yeah. of artists and such. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was basically that core band came out of the Michael Johnson band, okay. uh, Michael Young on drums and Jack Sundrud and me. And then we, uh, uh, we did some experimenting and uh, all the while Brent uh, Mayer was, we were experimenting with things. Basically, we did our first album as demo projects, you know, before we had a deal. And then we got Denny Bigsby to play bass and Jack switched from playing bass to being kind of the front man with the acoustic. And uh, I learned so much about recording. Uh, with that band, uh, Don Potter was the co-producer and incredible guitar player, acoustic. He played acoustic guitar with the touch of a great electric player. He played really, uh, I, you can, I don't want to say soft because he played with authority, but it was, he, he knew how to play the dynamics of the instrument. He played with pretty light gauge strings, but he had the touch of a great electric player. And I learned a lot about uh, how to record acoustic guitar, how to just do parts on a record. How, uh, once again, like uh, when you're with a trio where you play less, it, it actually means more. And uh, if you want to make a massive record, you play less. And you you know you play less massively somehow, but you you learn to play with what the other players are playing. And if the bass is doing a certain part, uh, don't try to ape what he's doing, but uh, uh, emphasize or not emphasize, but just uh, play something that uh, adds to what he's doing rather than just trying to copy what he's doing. And listen to all the different instruments when you're playing with the drums. Uh, Maybe emphasize a backbeat. Become part of the uh, become part of the drum set rhythmically, even on pedal steel, which sounds kind of weird. You know, find little rhythmic things to do that complement what the drums are doing. So right. it was, I learned to listen to within the band, and, and and instead of just blasting forth a part, going, "Hey, I got a cool part here," is listening more than than playing, and then seeing what you come up with. So I'm assuming that you that you all got to play on your own record. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because this again, this would not be the norm at this point. Most no. bands did not, you know, that were signed did not get to play on their own records. No, no, no. You know, maybe the Desert Rose Band, a few other right, you know, right. groups where it was actually they played on the records. No, no, we 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 played on the record, and uh, we had a, a J.T. Cornfloss, my dear friend. Uh, uh, came and played on a couple tracks with us just to 
because we wanted to do a couple things kind of a little more live and we needed the extra guitar player yeah and it was great to have him on there oh. So the the band had you know had some success, but then it, it didn't it didn't blow up like some of the other other bands of that era. So what what did you learn from that experience? Oh, you know I loved the band. I loved the first record, but by the time we got around to doing the second record, all the it became uh, we'd go record stuffing, and then there'd be meetings about what we recorded and demographics. Well, I don't know if we need steel on this for this demographic, and I'm just going. This is a big load of crap, as far as I'm concerned. I I don't care about any of that. I want to play the music, and uh, there was a time when radio started telling the labels what they wanted. Right. And you know, uh, it just. It was out of our hands. It was, I just, and I, I lost my spirit in it and I quit in the middle of the second record. Yeah. So uh, it was just, I loved the whole experience except when it, it, it got very corporate. And I learned, I don't, I, I don't need to be that guy. Yeah. I, I want to play. And I didn't really enjoy being in the spotlight that much. I realized I'd rather be behind the scenes, and I thought I need to play on sessions. Yeah. So, and at the same time, uh, I got married to Ginger, Billy's daughter, and we started raising a family. And I thought I don't need to be on the road either. So, that's when I uh, decided to uh, try to become a session player. So again, this is this is mid '90s at this point. Early '90s, probably '92. Yeah. Okay. So. You know, that's a, a perfect time <laughs> to, to try to get yes. into session work oh. just because of the amount of work. So you could, oh, yeah. you could do, uh, I mean, there was so much demo work because there were so many writers that were signed right. to publishing yeah. deals. Oh, yeah. And it was just, there, there was so much work. It was, kind of, it was kind of ridiculous in a way. It was literally three sessions a day, five days a week. It was really... Uh, one of those times, I look at my calendars from back then, and it's just crazy how how much I worked and uh, how much I learned about song structure. Right. Because uh, one of the first things I heard when I came to Nashville, if you want to play on sessions, get to know songwriters because you'll play on their demos. Somebody will hear the demo, then they'll go, I want that on my record. So right. I, I did that. It took a long time before I ever got on any records. But... Uh, I literally played uh, 15 sessions a week starting in the early 90s and just uh, uh, steady through. I, was, I, I got to a point where I was frustrated because I, I saw other people playing on records, but I, I thought it'll come, you know, that, it, that will take care of itself eventually. So I just slugged it out and uh, just learned the recording craft. I didn't want to just become a steel player. Uh, I wanted to be able to play guitar too, so I tried to kind of uh, be sort of a utility guy, I guess. I, I, for a while there, I was picking up new instruments. I learned to play very limited banjo. I got jaw harps. I, uh, you know, had a bunch of different things. But I also realized that uh, I wasn't going to be able to compete with steel players like Paul Franklin and Sonny Garish. And, uh, well, then Weldon Myrick was still playing. Uh, just uh, Dan Dugmore was in town. Um, I realized I had to change the game, my game for pedal steel, to compete with those guys. 
So I thought I need to, uh, I need to, I need to do something, and it sort of came to me. We'll treat it more like we're treating guitars, where you play into a pedal board, and uh, you need to know your traditional steel guitar. But I'll, uh, that's when I started using a lot of uh, uh, delays and things like that effects and. Uh, like I say, you know, the, the, the electric guitar evolved from Charlie Christian to Ingve uh, Malmsteen pretty darn quick over a period of 20-some years. It went from just trying to be a louder acoustic instrument where people started distorting it and manipulating it. Well, steel guitar, that didn't happen. No. It, the steel guitar is a very new instrument, really, you know, starting in the early 50s, the pedal steel. But... Uh, uh, no one was doing much, you know, a gimmick now and then, but it was basically uh, plug in straight into the amp and play clean. And I love that. And I, you know, did a lot of that, but I realized there's a whole other sonic world out there. And the steel guitar is such a great tone generator because of the sustain, using the volume pedal, being able to morph from one note to another so you could do synthesized parts. You could... Uh, uh, you know, do these big pads, uh, especially when you get into delays, maybe phasing it a little bit. And then I started realizing steel guitar pickups are all very high wound. They're like 15,000 to 18,000 ohms, where guitar pedals are like five to 7,000 ohms, much lower output. And I was, I was wondering, why does the steel sound so bad trying to distort it you know you plug it into a, an overdrive a blues driver or something and it just it, it doesn't sound it, it's not very friendly sounding and then I started uh, getting into pickup winding and experimenting with making my own pickups that were lower output right and then I realized most steel guitars don't even have a tone and volume control they just, you know, so I put those in there. And so I've started getting where I was treating the, the, the pedal steel almost like an electric guitar sonically. And that just evolved over a few years and got deeper into, uh, I'm not, I don't know that much about electronics and everything, but uh, at least working on guitar electronics, it's hard to get electrocuted. So I would just get in there and start soldering and winding and unwinding until it sounded better to me. Yeah. And uh, experimenting with the signal path and, and uh, uh, just uh, a, a different way to approach sonically the pedal steel. So I got into that. All the while trying to, part of me goes, you need to, you know, you need to respect the, the, the traditional steel guitar and, you know, and so I always try to keep one foot in that traditional uh, world too. So uh, kind of leading a double life. But initially on sessions, I would get my hands slapped a lot. No, you can't have that. That sounds kind of weird. And then eventually it got to be where people started asking for those things. And then, well, give me that wacky thing you do. And, you know, so it just over a period of years uh, just sort of developed a, a slightly different language, kind of my own little side language right. on the pedal steel. And... Uh, so now I'm, you know, I've got that. It's like being able to speak French and and German, and then go back to English when I need to. So. Right.
you really hit on an important point in that one, you kind of took steel in a different direction, but to do it, you had to go about fixing the problem, which were the steel guitar pickups that were overwound for most drive pedals and most, right. most type of gain effects. Right, right. And so by creating your own pickups, you were able to all of a sudden, you know, have, you know, marriage with these gain pedals and right, you're able right, to get right, good sounds right. out of them instead of them being these horrible, yeah, just, yeah, 10K steel guitar pickups. Yeah, into, yeah, yeah. Or 18, yeah, whatever they can well, be. Well, most steel pickups are anywhere from 15. I've seen them up to like 22,000 ohms. Just mid-range machines, you know, just a lot of... And, yeah. and they start getting dark on the on the on the on the high end and to me any pickup on any guitar is all about the sibilant range right right there that's where all the magic is in a pickup everything else you can deal with you can adjust and everything but if you don't have a sweet sibilant sound on a pickup it, in my book it's it's kind of useless so uh i started experimenting uh i realized that what the problem was and a, a short for a short window there, Jason Lawler made me probably a dozen pickups. I, I've got, uh, I still have a couple of them, uh, uh, P90 steel guitar pickups, uh, uh, Jazzmaster steel guitar pickups. Wow. And uh, uh, then the 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 Stringmaster, which is kind of one he 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 already made. That's like the Fender old lap steel pickups, which is basically a Strat pickup. And you know, which is the simplest pickup design there is. And uh, somewhere probably 10, 12 years ago, I, uh, uh friend gave me a pickup winder. <laughs> that was dangerous. So I started uh, winding pickups in the garage and uh, I'm still learning. It's, that's a, that's a treacherous business, yeah. but it's pretty cool. And, and you've also, we'll just hit on this now, you've also built some guitars for, for your friends. Right, yeah so, yeah. so, you know, we've had a number of guests on the show right, right. that have had, you know, some of, right, some of the guitars right. that you've built. And uh, really interesting to see these, you know, because on all of them you've wound your own pickups. Right, right, right. And... Uh, well, my, my deal is I've been, since I was a kid in the, in the playing guitar, you know, in the early 60s, you could go out in 1964, 65, all day long and buy used Fender guitars for $100, $75. All the great ones, you know, we wish we could go back. Right. Somebody said, I wish I had a time machine and a pickup truck so I could go pick up a, you know, a box full of these guitars. And we used to hot rod them. And that's why the ones that are untouched now are worth so much because we, you know, we we gutted. You know, I used to borrow pickups from one guitar to put in another, and and you couldn't go buy pickups. You know, right. you couldn't even buy uh, gauge strings back then. And uh, but I've always been a, a guitar hot rodder, and so now I like to. You know, every once in a while I, I'll get a a, a Musicraft body and a or a MJT body and a Musicraft neck, and uh, uh, just play with the, the chemistry of uh, what the neck and the guitar, or the body and the neck, what they're doing with each other. A lot of times I'll put one together and don't even put pickups on it and just play it and see, is this doing something? Maybe if I put this other neck, it'll be a little better. And uh, 
then just playing around and uh, wind some pickups on it. And uh, I like to just dink around on it for a few days, just adjusting it. And it's like hot rodding a car. You sort yeah. of you take it to a certain point, tweak it a little too far, and you just back it off a little bit. And then you get the action and you get the pickup height and everything. And there's always sort of a sweet spot you're looking for. So I do that and I'll build one, basically I build, build them for myself and then like Guthrie Trap will get his hands on it and then I'll never see it again, you yeah. know. And uh, that happened with Kenny Greenberg and, and a few of my friends. So that's been a lot of fun to do that. And, you know, I, it, a couple times a month I'll, I'll uh, you know, start working on a guitar. I, I, I do a lot of experimental ones on my own where I try different... Uh, mahogany necks and just different chemistry you yeah. know your income stream if we can borrow that phrase is it mainly from session work how much of it is it from live live playing right now i'm not doing you know covid kind of put the right. kibosh on that and you know i i've uh back in the early 2000s i went out on the road with vince gill for three four years uh that was really one of the only road gigs I had steady, yeah. and mostly just uh, playing sessions. With COVID, uh, I started doing a lot more home overdubs, and uh, uh, COVID kind of changed the rules because before COVID, I, I've always been doing home overdubs, and you know it was kind of it was demo work. It was not master records, but now. I'm doing records for people all the time. I, uh, oh, about a year and a half ago, a, f a friend of mine, um, Leon Michaels up in New York, said, I, I, can you play steel on these three tracks for me? And he sent them to me. And I'm up at, I've got a little uh, cottage in, up in southern Kentucky out in the middle of nowhere. I barely got internet, you know, to do files around. And I was up there in the middle of the COVID winter, and I put this... Uh, these tracks in and and I had to email them and go, who's that singing? And it was Nora Jones. So I did a I did a, a three songs on this Nora Jones Christmas record that came out last year. And one of my favorite things is on the album credits, it's everything is, you know, New York and Brooklyn, all these kind of hipster places. And then Russ Paul did his uh, overdubs from his house in Price's Mill, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I take a lot of pride in that, but uh, been able to do quite a bit of uh, work from home, and yeah. things are opening up now. So I'm I'm doing. I just did an album with Dan Arbach a couple weeks ago right. on a young artist, and yeah, you you have kind of a history with him. Uh, you know, even on a recent uh, Austin City Limits mm -hmm. episode, you were seen you know playing right, right. mostly guitar. Yeah, I didn't even have a steel guitar out at that time. I was just playing, just getting to play second guitar to a guitar guy. It was great. You know? yeah. yeah. So how much have you had to hustle for work through the years? And how do you go about doing that? Well, when I first came to Nashville in 84, I guess, I, every night, at about nine o'clock, I'd take my steel guitar under one arm, my PV amp under the other arm, and I went out. There was a bunch of little country honky tonks around Nashville, out around Music or Music Valley and Trinity Lane, and I would just go. I play steel guitar. Can I sit in with you? And you know, 
sometimes I just sit up on the dance floor. I play a set, then I pack up and go to another club. And I did that for a number of weeks. And uh, eventually I started getting people saying, well, can you uh, sub for me while I'm at the Opry? And right. can you do... So I ended up kind of starting to get some club work that way. And then that sort of, uh, you know, trickled down to some, uh, a little bit of road work. I might go out with Cal Smith for a weekend playing Country Bumpkin or uh, uh, things like that, or get on demo sessions. So I've never really, other than that, I've never really gone out and canvassed for work. Right. I've just, it's sort of uh, just been around doing it enough and uh, I, I'm not an unfriendly person, so you know, eventually you just kind of start running into work. And then, and always try to do good work and that, that, that reputation will follow you around. And uh, so then you just kind of answer the phone. Yeah. yeah. So you had to do some hustling at first. I, before, I did some hustling. Before people started kind of getting to right, know what, right. what you do. Yeah. It, it took, there was a year of, of, of uh, but those were very fertile times in the mid-80s. There was a lot going on. There was a lot. Like the Nashville network was there. So I would, I would play on TV shows with different people all the time. So I got, you know, I got some exposure that way. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot going on. Yeah. So. Let's hit on something that you, you, were, you were talking about doing these remote sessions mm -hmm. where you're recording from home. Well, the part that that entails is now all of a sudden you're your own engineer right right okay so how much of a learning curve was it to to learn how to get a good sound for yourself from home and what equipment did you have to get well uh, i learned back in the 70s from a dear friend of mine up in minneapolis he had an apartment upstairs from me and he had a, a tascam four track you know the old reel to reel and he taught me how to uh, basically how to get the needle to go up towards the red, but don't go much further. Just basically how to get a, a signal. And that's very important. And uh, so I've been around recording equipment and I, I'll always ask questions. And I, always, I, I know every engineer in town because we're all friends because we work together. Right. And when you go into a session, you talk about it. What microphone are you gonna put on? What preamp are you going through? You start learning that stuff. Yeah. But I, uh, Started back in the 90s getting a, ta uh, a hard disk recorder and I started doing remote overdubs and had a digital mixer that was, you know, had a one life, span, a one year span, was worth $10,000 one year. The next year I couldn't give it away. Right. Uh, but then I got into Pro Tools pretty early on and it's pretty intuitive. I don't learn anything more than I need to know. I mean, I've produced some records and I've actually engineered them and everything, but as far as recording myself for people, I have now, I just have a little, uh, very simple little interface, a uh, little Apogee stereo interface, and I've been using a Strymon uh, Iridium, their little uh, yeah. amp model or whatever it is, very, so simple. I just use that. I plug my electric instruments into that and... Uh, I used to mic up an amp and, you know, I basically keep things simple. I use a SM57 and a, a, a API preamp and really it sounds best if you don't do anything else to it. You know, if you're going to 
limit it or do anything. Do that all later on. But as you're recording, try to record it pretty pure. Yeah. And uh, I find that really loud doesn't record really well. If you can have your amp, I used to use a small amp, little Princeton Reverb. Uh, most steel players have these big 200 watt amps. Right. I've been using the same Princeton for 20 years. Yeah. I, I was uh, kind of blown away. We were, uh, it was, you know, wor working an award show years ago, and uh, you know, I was just, you know, backstage, and uh, you know, and here was Vince Gill's, you know, setup, mm -hmm. and I looked around, and I think Al Anderson was mm -hmm. playing with y'all at the yeah, on yeah. this award show. And I was just looking around, and then I saw the steel rig, and you had an, a, a reissued deluxe reverb, yeah, which was yeah. like that was the opposite of what every other steel player was using. Every <laughs> every other steel player had like, you know, a Session Four Hundred or a Nashville Four. You know, they usually had yeah. two, you know, oh, big yeah, amp stereo or and, power amps and, yeah, and, yeah. and and JBL or Black Widow speakers, and and it would just blew my mind when I saw when I saw your steel. And again, this was early 2000s, yeah. yeah, but it was... Uh, well, that's what I learned f playing with the Don Williams band. I realized that, uh, you know, the, 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 the front of house engineer is always yelling, you're too loud, I can't get you in the speakers. Well, yeah. I, I took that to heart, and so I play where they can barely hear me, yeah. and the best reverb on a pedal steel is when you're playing on stage and it's coming through the house, and that's the best natural reverb. Yeah. And uh, Vince used to, about all he'd ever have to say about my playing was, you're the softest steel player I've ever played with. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, but, even John Huey and JD, they both oh, yeah, play yeah. You know, louder. No, I, I uh, you know, you put the amp up on a little stand right behind you and you can hear yourself. I don't like hearing it in a monitor. I just want to, uh, that 12 inch, if, I, if you can't hear a 12 inch speaker, you should get your ears checked. You know, and yeah. a Fender amp for like a steel guitar for the, uh, to get into a clean, any kind of tone, you know, up around anywhere from two and a half to three and a half on the volume. That's where that amp wants to be. That's where if you play soft, it'll play clean. If you hit it a little hard, you, you can get it to grunt a little bit. Right. You know, but not really uh, flop out on. Yeah. So it's, it's all about scale. You can do the same thing with twin reverb. It's just going to be louder. Right. I've been, uh, I, I want to check, I want to get another, I, uh, I've had several of the uh, Pro Junior Fender. I've been thinking, I need to go back to using a Pro Junior. I think that would make a nice little steel amp. Oh. Because I do like to be able to get a little of the natural overdrive. You know, just that, that it's a bit of expression. It's, you don't want full on a pedal overdrive that's, oh, you want something that's, there's a, there's that little sweet spot where it's, it's clean and fat, a little crunch or a little cleaner. You know, yeah. there's a sweet, there's a sweet spot. Do you, can you look back on your playing career and say there's a certain record or a song that you played on that helped you really make it as your own person and not having to play like other steel players or uh, other guitar players? Yeah, well, I think uh, Gretchen Wilson had a song called uh, uh, Redneck Girl, I think it was called. And I had a solo in that that was uh, probably should, <laughs> probably should have taken another take on it. It was the uh, the uh, uh, 
the track, it was live solo, and I did kind of this, I call it Eddie Van Arnold, kind of rocking off, kind of almost sounds like you're doing tapping stuff. And uh, that was a big, huge hit record, right. and that was a solo on it. So, yeah. And it didn't sound like anybody else. And, uh, uh, you know, so much what I've done is textures on records so it's more subtle there's really not any points where that was the landmark recording it right. was kind of an accumulation of of, of sonic tapestry is yeah. probably where I, you but, know but was there a recording that people would use as a, as a touchstone at all i can say oh i'm hiring you because i i liked what you did on this album <laughs> boy that's a tough one uh I really don't know. I can't think of anything in okay. particular. Sorry, bad yeah. answer. Yeah, no. Yeah, because because you're 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 still playing because you you've got these lower output pickups. You're going through and you're not trying to because so many steel players are so trapped in the the Buddy Emmons Lloyd mm -hmm. Green right, right. kind of thing, which is great. Oh yeah. But the, those guys have already done it. Yeah. And or or Paul Franklin. I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, but, but Paul's and you know what. It was and is an innovator. Did all sorts oh, of things with the, with the with the pedal steel. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to see how you know you really saw that that had been done and how you, right, you right, really right. blazed your own trail with the with the pedal steel. Well, you know, because I'm listening to stuff like U2 and a lot of that. You know, the 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 dotted eights thing that they did. Right. You know that and. Uh, uh, Doing that, I mean, there's a few. Uh, I think there's a Toby Keith record where the first part of the record is just me going da 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 da. Yeah, I've, you know, I've yeah. heard you do, do that on 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 the on the pedal steel with the with the right, dotted right, eight thing, right. playing these you know patterns. And and then I'd do stuff like uh, without telling anybody. I would you know I would be I would have the song set to the grid because the song's on a grid, and on the second verse. I might put in a little rhythm pattern, and nine times out of ten, they uh, after we play the take, they'd talk to the guitar player and go, "Man, that was a great part you played on the second verse." And then they go, "Well, it wasn't me." So I, I sort of, you know, getting a reputation as uh, the steel player that could actually play with the rhythm section too. Yeah. And and sometimes I'll do whole rhythm passes. Won't even play anything that remotely sounds like a pedal steel, but it'll be more like a sequenced part. Yeah. So. Let's talk about Dan Arbach. How how did you get involved with him? Um, through Buddy Miller, who okay. I've I've known Buddy for years and played on a lot of things with him. Well, at the time, Dan Arbach lived just across the alley from uh, Buddy, and. Dan was, uh, this is probably 10, 12 years ago, uh, was looking for a steel player that, you know, colored outside the lines. And Buddy said, I got your guy. So yeah. Buddy called me and says, you, you don't mind if I give my phone number, your phone number out? And I said, fine. And Dan called me and said, can you come over this afternoon? We're working on something. So I walked in and... Uh, there was all these guys in tribal headdresses and everything, uh, uh, Bombino, and uh, uh, this guy from somewhere in Africa, you know, the Jimi Hendrix of South Africa, or not South Africa, I don't even know exactly where it was. But he just threw me in with them, said, go in and just play. I want to hear what you do. And so we did a track, and I ended up kind of playing this kind of swimmy solo in the end of the, you know, with the song. 
And uh, we just uh, kind of went from there, you know, finished that record, did a couple more days tracking with those guys. And I actually did my, the only time I've ever done the hustle was with Dan Arbach because I loved his whole thing. And I said, Dan, I'm here as a steel player and that's great, but I would love to play guitar with you. I, I love to play guitar. I love to play rhythm guitar. It's probably my deepest passion is to playing rhythm guitar. And so I'm not gonna say anything more, but just put me on that list. So since then, I've kind of, uh, I've done more guitar work for him than anything else. And then we might do steel. A lot of times the steel would be an overdub, but got very deep into guitar parts and Dan Electro tic-tac parts and uh, gut string finger-picky rhythm parts. And uh, so I've, I've done, probably 20, 30 albums over there. Yeah. And, well, and I love that you, in a, in a classy way, kind of put it out there because if you hadn't, it would no. never, never would have happened. And, you know, and I don't, I don't like to uh, ring my own bell too often, but I thought this could actually make a difference. And it did, you know, yeah. we became friends and we still work. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Just a quick word to tell you that if you have one of these, then you need one of these. See, the One Spot Pro Series from True Tone are the only power supplies that I know of that can power a Line 6 HX series from a single output. All you need are what comes in the box already. A green plug, a red plug, a DC cable, hook it up to your HX, off you go. That's it. All right, Russ, we're gonna talk, talk gear now. Now we've got, we're, okay. we're reset. We've got your pedal steel. So tell us about what, you know, obviously, You've got your own thing going here, and I think ShowPro has has helped you out with this. But oh, yeah. You've got your own wiring and everything on here. So tell us about this pedal steel. Well, uh, Jeff Surratt at ShowPro, I've known a long time. This is probably the third or fourth guitar he's built for me. And uh, uh, every time we get a little further out, and he'd, I'd, I'd have my ideas, and he'd kind of go, uh, and then a day later go, oh, maybe we can do that, maybe we can do that. Well, this yeah. is a... Uh, this is probably five or six years old. Uh, longer scale length, it's 25 inches. It's about three quarters of an inch longer than standard. I'm tuned down to E flat instead of E, just because all my favorite guitar players tended to do that, and I, I decided to try it on the steel. I can use much heavier strings, and yeah. just it gives it a bigger throat to me. Uh, it's a big one-piece slab. It's like 12 or 13 inches of maple, where most single necks are only, you know, seven or eight. So it's kind of like an old Fender in a way. Uh, he built it for me with no electronics. And then uh, we designed this neck thing so we could put a, uh, it's all hollowed out, and you can just change out this like a pick guard, and uh, it's got extra holes, and I've got a, uh, uh, Ghetto Stomp, Nick Greer made it. Uh, I've got that built in here. I've got a little EP2. Uh, booster. Little, little booster in there. This controls one of my delays. Just the for the uh, dotted thing. And uh, this just is either uh, distortion or that. It's just a and it switches the batteries in and out. Neck selector, and then I've got a Leslie speed switch when I use a, a, 
little Leslie simulator and stuff. And then this is a, uh, another delay. So I can set that to the song and have in, you know, infinite uh, sustain with that. So you just hit a note. And you can just have that for uh, uh, expression, you know, it's just an expression. Yeah. So, so some of these effects are built into the instrument yeah. and some of these are controlling devices that are right, on your right. pedal board. These two here, I've got uh, cords running out and they're using the expression control for this, like this M5 and this little uh, boss delay. Okay. So, and you can use them whatever you want, you know. Right. But I've, I've had this hooked up to a wah-wah pedal and all kinds of things. So, so. You, you have, exp so it's like an expression pedal that, yeah. that's built, in, but it's a knob instead and you've... And well, you've when you're playing pedal steel, your feet are already engaged. Right. It's hard to do a pedal dance because you're already doing a pedal dance. Right. You know, the, the volume pedal is very expressive. Sometimes it's a bit of a crutch, but, you know, usually that right foot is busy. Plus, each... Each leg is controlling two knee levers, too, and then these two pedals. So you're already got a, quite a dance going on. So I've tried to get things that I can control here because I can just reach over with my right hand or left hand, depends, and right. just control some of that stuff uh, remotely instead of having to lean over. And, and you've got some batteries underneath the board yep. also to power the, the effects of yeah, your Yeah, I've got turn. a 9 volt tucked up yeah. under there, and this, this little rotor switch here is bypass. This brings in the Nick Greer and it also switches the battery to that. Right, so the battery doesn't wear out. Yeah, the battery lasts a year. It's yeah. amazing. You have to change it now and then because it, it just kind of gets away from you. But. Yeah. And so you, you have a couple of knee levers and just two pedals. Two pedals, yeah. Yeah. Most guys have the third pedal, which basically, I'm going to speak in terms of an E-tuning just because okay. it's, it's e flats too. Yeah. yeah. That raises the fourth string a whole tone and it's a combined it's a, but I, I put it on a knee lever so I can get the same by using a knee lever and I can get more combinations plus this is a very expressive whole tone and almost as expressive as the first pedal which is a whole tone and which is 99% of what pedal steel expression is is that That's where all the money is, and that's where all the emotion is. And without that, it's not a pedal steel. Yeah. So uh, everything else is just rudimentary chord changes and stuff. But that's where the, all the expression is. See, this is another unique aspect of you as an artist, even though you're playing on other people's records, is here you have this very personalized instrument right, that's right. been made for you and right, has all, right. all these... <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a rat's nest, but uh, I'm lucky. I'm uh, I'm adept enough to keep it running. You know, I got to yeah. take some every once in a while. You got to get in there and fix up a solder joint. Uh, my oldest sister worked uh, worked her way through college uh, summers working for Minneapolis Honeywell, and she was a solderer, so a certified solderer. So she taught me how to solder, so I'm, I'm so, trained. So you know how to do a good job. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly <laughs> what the wires do, but as long as it's not high voltage, I'll, I'll dig in. Yeah. You know, so. Show us your, uh, the guitar that you built oh. behind you. 
this is uh, this has kind of become my go-to guitar last year or so. It's uh, just strat body. I ended up routing it out for some humbuckers. Uh, and did you wind those yourself? Yeah, also? these yeah. there's a place up in uh, it's called Philadelphia Luthier Supply. Right. And he has every kind of PAF part, even the wider spacing for the for the strat bridge. Right. And believe me, there's a whole trail of dead pickups, you know, leading to these. That was my first uh, venture into into uh, humbucker pickups. Yeah. yeah. So you know, because there's all sorts of uh, there's so many things you can do with a humbucker where you have the the coils offset as far as the number of windings, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether you pot it or not. All this rigmarole, and, yep. and, uh, and so what did you find what, what the, was the thing that worked for you? Well, I ended up using enamel wire, 42-gauge okay. wire. I tried poly and then the uh, uh, form var. Right. And I don't know how much difference, but these ones ended up being the, the enamel, and that worked good. Uh, they're pretty low wound. I don't think, I, I bet they only read 6.5 or something. I don't think they're real hot and I, I purposely mismatched the coils a little bit maybe one's like 7600 the other one's like 74 right. you know, to, just to let, a, let a little more air through yeah yeah and and like I say I made a bunch of them and I said earlier it's all about the sibilant range it's getting up into the uh, uh, where the um, There's a nice brightness to them. You can almost get into a fender. We're getting a little... Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's a bad case. Yeah. Oh, that's just my life. But anyhow. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's... It, I play a lot of rhythm guitar, and it's a great rhythm guitar. Right. I got flat wounds on it, so it's a little clunky, but... Yeah. And do you tend to use flat wounds a lot? On certain guitars, some yeah. do, some work really well, some right. don't. This has got a plain third, yeah, and uh, it's got a mahogany neck. Yeah, uh, I ordered a, it's a it's a Jazzmaster headstock, but it's mahogany with rosewood, so it kind of, uh, to me, it's getting closer to that morph between a Fender and a Gibson. Yeah, it's and tell us about the circuitry that we can oh, see. Oh, well, that's just. Uh, you know, there's a hole there, and, and I've never been much for the third pickup, so I just took a little piece of circuit board and put some spare parts in there. So it's okay, a so that's conversation just, piece. That's yeah. Just, yeah, so that's not connected. Yeah, I could tell. I should put a little light on it and then, you know, tell them that's, that's the zoom circuit. But <laughs> it's really not. But, uh, yeah, I play this guitar quite a bit. It's a great yeah. guitar. It's a lot of fun. And my wife likes the color. She calls it greeny. I don't name my guitars, but she does. So, so it's a good one. And this is a, oh, probably 10 or 12-year-old Gretsch, Japanese Gretsch, that uh, I got on a trade. Uh, it had a tunematic. It wasn't speaking acoustically. And uh, so I actually drilled into the top of the guitar to put a tunematic on it. And just by chance stuck this Bigsby bridge on, which is non-adjustable, right. but it's actually in the exact right spot. So it's right in tune. So it's just, it's a hard aluminum bridge. So. Yeah. And these are some uh, homemade uh, filter trons. And once again, made a bunch of them and 
finally kind of got down to where they sounded right. I rewired it so uh, a Gretsch, stock Gretsch has, you know, got about 20 feet of wire before yeah, you get and, to the, Yeah, and it's confusing. Yeah. The wiring's confusing. So, so this is the tone control, mm -hmm. this is the volume, and then the three-way, and there's very little wire in the guitar. Yeah, and I love how <laughs> you've kind well, of filled those spots. It looks, it looks great. Uh, Dan Arbach has been a, a nice influence on me. I've been around so many of my friends, like Bukovac, Tom Bukovac, you know, we're, we're, we're all about these beautiful vintage guitars, but you can't, you can't hot rod them. Uh, and and what, one of the, the factors that people don't think about is these, a lot of these all original instruments, they weren't really played very much. And, right, and right, sometimes right. they weren't played very much because they weren't great guitars. Right, right. And then you have these guitars that were great instruments that guys played them a lot. And because of that, they had to replace stuff on yeah. it or they hot rodded. Yeah. A lot of times those are the better instruments. Oh, yeah, the hot rodded yeah. guitars. Yeah. And, and Dan has taught me it's okay to put your initials on a guitar and, and your mailbox letters or, yes. you know, so. And, and that, uh, that, that's a funny thing because I've, I've thought about that a lot recently, looking at old pictures mm -hmm. of country performers and especially like old pictures of guys using Fender instruments. Yeah. And you see guys playing Telecasters and they've got mailbox letters on yeah. them. Or even Jimmy Bryant, he had his oh, pick guard with yeah. his name and like a cowboy yeah. and all this stuff. And it's So I, I'm, I'm celebrating that for, for, for a while there. I, uh, you know, was trying to be correct like everybody else. And right. Uh, I realized, uh, first off, to me, instruments aren't a great investment, so I got out of that. I've got a couple nice old guitars, but I, I, yeah. I, uh, uh, most of my guitars now are kind of like this, just character yeah. pieces. But it's a great guitar, and uh, I get to use it quite a bit in the studio. So. Yeah. Let's talk about the amp. So you've got an old uh, drip edge, you know, probably 68, 67 uh, yeah. Princeton reverb. Yeah. And this one has got a bit of a story. Uh, I think it was originally owned by Jim Colvard, who was a great session player in the late 60s through the 70s. Yeah. And just because that's not like as common a name as like, you know, maybe Reggie Young or right. James Burton or something like that, could you give it just like the, the, the short version of well, things that he Jimmy in, played on? he was the, the original player in uh, Barefoot Jerry. All the great rock and roll leads possibly were played through this amp. Yeah. You know, and I was, we were talking earlier, he had an LPB1, and yeah. you can see where the Tolex is wore away from where he plugged it right into the amp. He played on the Don Williams records, Crystal Gale records, uh, just in the, especially the early 70s, he was right there with everybody else. He was one of the first guys to bring distortion to the Nashville game. He was the first rock, really the first rock and roll guitar player to play on country records. Yeah. You know, and he was great, and he, he had a tragic ending. And uh, yeah. but uh, did did he play on Six Days on the Road early, yes, earlier? Yes, matter of fact, okay. he did. Okay, because I've, that's <laughs> this right. Is, this is going to be a, a crazy aside, but yes, yeah, he did have a tragic ending. And uh, Colvard uh, played on Six Days on the Road yes. for for Dave Dudley, yeah. which is a really different tune because of the, the fact the percussiveness of his playing, the yeah. twanginess. But then he was a serious jazzer yes, also. And yeah. so he played on the um, the uh, kind of Opry Almanac show. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was played like a, a Gibson Birdland. And then uh, through a bunch of, of research, I know this is a crazy aside. No, it's a good one. I was I was able to find out, this took a lot of detective work, but I was able to find out there is a version of Caravan 
that uh, was released on a on a country music you know compilation. It's mm -hmm. an instrumental version of Caravan, and everyone thought it was Grady Martin playing guitar on it. And I was able to talk to uh, to Steve Gibson, who at the time was you know the, uh, the the music director on the Opry. Right. He was able to talk to some of the guys that actually played on that session, and all of them agreed that the playing style. And the guys that were there, they remembered Jimmy Colvard yeah. playing that. And so it was really great to be able to identify that that was something that he played on. That was a really right. great recording of it. Because it's just, if anyone wants to find the recording, it's Ferlin Husky Caravan, which Ferlin Husky <laughs> was a singer. But it's but that's the only thing that it was. It was Ferlin Husky. They had time left over, and they just cut this version of Caravan. But it's amazing, and Jimmy's playing was fantastic. So okay, so that enough of the okay. aside on Colvard. Well, yeah. six days on the road is worth a real close listen because it's got yeah. some amazing guitar playing. Yes. Um, well, then I think uh, Steve Hinson had it for a while. Yeah, great steel player. And uh, then he sold it to me. I played it for a number of years. Then I sold it to Bukovac. And, of course, it ended up coming back to me from Bukovac. Yeah, he sells so, everything. Yeah, so between yeah. Hinson, Colvard, uh, Bukovac, and me, this has been on thousands of records. It's, wow. it's a great little amp, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got just the right amount of wear to it, oh, where yeah. it's like, this is a serious amp. This, is, this has been around, it's got stories to tell, and it's got a really nice, full-throated yeah. sound. And I saw in the back that it's got a 10-inch Celestian Gold yeah. uh, speaker yep. in there. I've yeah. had different ones. I like uh, the Eminence makes some good speakers. Uh, yeah. uh, but this one was what Bukovac had in it, and I haven't touched it. And yeah. it's, it's great amp. Yeah. Great amp. Let's talk about your pedal board. So okay. I, I'll just say right now, glad that uh, you know, glad that you're using a True Tone power <laughs> supply. So was, well, was I'm always, glad that was, worked out. Yes. So that was so you've got a CS12 yeah. underneath there, and then uh, tell us, uh, tell us what all you've got over there. Oh uh, well, basically I start out by going into a, 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 the a, a Boss GE7, which is an analog man one. They taking kind of clean it up. Take right. some of the noise out of it. Go into a little RC booster, which I'm kind of not using so much these days. Uh, maybe going to clear out some real estate. Uh, uh, I've got a C9 organ thing here. Uh, once in a while, you know, sometimes I'll blend that in with, with things and you... Uh, hard to guess that's a steel guitar. You know? and, there, uh, finally, finally, I was listening to some old Haggard records, yeah. and there was a period of time where the pedal steel was run through a Leslie oh, on, yeah, a, on a couple of yeah. Haggard tracks, oh, yeah. and it's just kind of it kind of blew my mind for a minute because it was like 1968 or 69, oh, yeah. and all of a sudden it's yeah. like, why the, the steel's going through a Leslie? Oh, <laughs> Leslie's great. I used yeah. to when I played in rock bands up in Minneapolis, I carried around a Leslie 147 for several years, and had a lever here to do the speed switching. And you know, yeah. we played Tower of Power songs. I played all the horn parts and the organ parts on the on, steel. On the steel. So, so after the C9. And then I go to this Mobius. Yeah. The, and uh, uh, the Strymon stuff is all good. They, they, yeah. uh, I've had really good luck with it. Uh, I use the phaser a lot. It's, uh, it's, I like it because I can, it's, uh, you can, you can increase the intensity and stuff. And uh, you know, uh, just, it's a great sound. 
Uh, if somebody meet, uh, mentions Sneaky Pete, just put a little of that on there and, 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 and they're in. So, and I use it for, there's a lo-fi setting and uh, there's good tremolos. It's just a good, it's a very good uh, uh, Swiss Army knife. And then I go down, I got a pog, which I just, a lot of times I just put a little of the octave up on it. It's almost like having a bright switch. You don't really hear it, but you feel a little sing in the... It'll help it kind of cut through a yeah, little better. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, I go to the volume pedal. So the, yeah. the I'm not even seeing a volume pedal till after... Yes. I have what I call my tone shaping pedals, and that's distortions, uh, EQ, any kind of modulation, anything like that. That all comes before the volume pedal. Uh, and so let me just pause here to, to spotlight the fact that this is not the norm for steel players. Right. Most steel players would go straight from the steel into the volume pedal, and then they would have any type of effects right. after that. And of course, most of them don't use any type of right. you know, gain effects. Right. But that's immediately, that way you're able to have your drive level, and then you're just able to use your volume pedal as a master right, volume. Right, right. Because yeah. if you put the volume pedal before, Anything like that, you're constantly changing the input to it. So, right. uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. this way, when I have a distortion, it's all the same at every uh, every volume. So yeah. then, then I go into my uh, uh, time things, delays and reverbs and stuff. Yeah. And I've got I've had any number of uh, digital delays. I'm using the Boss now as a DD200. I've had the bigger version of it. Uh, I like it because it has a readout. So if somebody says this track, is, you know, everything's on the grid these days. Right. So, you know, 85, I can dial it in for a dotted sound. And uh, uh, also it's got an expression control. So I can control. So I, right here, I can, uh, I, on the fly, I can adjust what I want. And then I go from that into a... a M5, uh, line six, which I've, I've had dozens of them over the years. They usually last me about 18 months and then something gets funky. I just go buy another one. They're like 150 bucks. <laughs> it's an amazing toolbox or, or yeah, Because Swiss it, Army it has knife. so many different sounds. Yeah and, yeah, and so much of it is good. But yeah. mostly it's my, um, it's my runaway delay. And I have it set on a low, uh, low fidelity delay and the control is controlling the, the gain of the, uh, the volume of the repeats and the runaway of it, so. Yeah. So you can get a, a steel guitar, which is hard to have controlled feedback. I can get it to feed back in a very controlled manner, generally in tune. Would you uh, play a little bit of your kind of dotted eighth kind of rhythmic sure. thing just so people can hear what that sounds like on the steel? Because people are used to sure. hearing that on guitar. Yeah. But let's uh, Let me... give us give us a second of that just so we okay. can we can we can hear that. Let's see. Let's see if that eighty four. Let's see here. It's going to take a second. Uh, sure. let's, let's go to about right around a hundred beats and. Uh, I'll set this, whoops, set them both to 100. So this first one is just doing a uh, dot. Mm -hmm. 
And then the second one is doing a. So you get go from one, one, I call it a photographic delay. Right. And generally you try to make it so it's the equal of the volume of the original note. And then this other one, that's doing straight eights. So let's see. Let's see, get rid of some of this verb. Uh, So it's just a bunch of things with the volume pedal. You can, if you hit it for, with every quarter note, you can use it a lot. I probably abuse that, you know, but in a second verse of a song, yeah. you'll be going along and I'll be filling the choruses with, you know, just kind of. But we'll get to a second verse and normally I'd be just sitting there wishing I was smoking cigarettes or something. I might just go. And it, it generally people like that, so you know it's just. And the guitar player gets credit. Yeah, and the guitar player gets <laughs> until credit. he admits yeah. that he, uh, he yeah. didn't play. Yeah. I know yeah. I didn't play that. Yeah, yeah, that's happened yeah. a number of times. So yeah. yeah, it's it it's the oldest trick in the book. I think maybe it goes back to Grady Martin. Uh, uh, was it Bird of Paradise? Fly up your nose. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Albert Lee did a lot with it. Buddy Emmons did a track right. on it. Uh, yeah. And then uh, Edge. Kind yeah. of took it to a whole new level, yeah. and uh, Pink Floyd. So it, it's a it's an old gag, but it's a really usable thing. It's yeah, it is. It is it's a great gag. So and uh, I guess at the end of the line, you've got that iridium for when you go direct. Yeah, and also I got this thing. This uh, Kenny Greenberg turned me on to this. Uh, um, it's called a Super Moon, hmm. and it's a. It's just a nice smoky. Smoky, verby kind of. Yeah, and I was using it, oh, a couple years ago, uh, and uh, working on something for T-Bone Burnett. He said, what's that sound? And I said, well, it's this super moon. And he got online and bought one, and uh, next time I talked to him, he said, I'm doing the soundtrack for uh, True Detective, and I'm running everything through the super moon. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's, that's good. Yeah. But it's a real nice, uh, you know, there's there's lots of reverbs. We can get all caught up in all the different. I like a plate. That's yeah. what they used to use on steel guitars in the studio. The spring reverb. There's nothing better than a Fender spring reverb. Yeah. But uh, then there's kind of the sort of effects reverbs, and this this covers a lot of ground for that. Yeah. And then into the iridium, and the iridium. Uh, all the time when I'm recording at home, that's what I use. I just go right into my computer. And have you done any, because you, know, you can like download different IRs or anything. Have you done anything to no. the unit? No, it's just it as I bought it probably right. three years ago. I haven't touched it. Great. But it's just, it's almost like it's not there. It's yeah. it's so transparent. And which of the modes do you like? I, I usually start on the Fender because that's yeah. where I'm, but I use the Vox a lot. Yeah. 
and uh, just because it is a nice little chiminess. And then if I'm doing something really overdriven, I'll, I'll use the Marshall a bit because that's a little darker. And, you know, yeah. So. But right now you're just you're. you're I'm not just going, going straight, straight in. Straight I'm, I'm bypassing okay. it. So. Yeah, T-Bone Burnett. How how did you end up working with him? Ah. Uh, Buddy Miller was, uh, well, two guys, two guys, Dennis Crouch, the bass player, and Buddy right. Miller. Uh, back when they were working on, uh, after the Raising Sand record, uh, the Allison Krauss, Robert Plant record, uh, they were doing a second album. And Dennis and uh, Buddy were both going, uh, T-Bone's really fishing for a steel player here in Nashville. He just doesn't want... The, you know, the usual or whatever that means. I, right. And we've been, you know, giving him your name. And finally one night about 10 o'clock, I was just relaxing and the phone rings and it was Buddy Miller. He said, get over to Sound Emporium right now. Bring your steel guitar. So I go over and I'm a little nervous. I walk in and here's the tracking room full of, you know, Mark Rebo and Jay uh, um, Bella Rose. Yeah. This whole bunch of people and Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, they're in the middle of working on a, a Merle Haggard song. And basically they stopped for me to come in and set up. Ooh, that's a lot of pressure. And get my sound and they're kind of waiting, you know, they were yeah. all in place. And finally this big tall blonde guy, big guy T-Bone comes over and introduces himself, said I've heard good things about you. Then he leans over and says, I don't like steel guitar licks and that's the last discussion we've ever had about steel guitar and yeah. and luckily I, I i think i read into that and knew what he meant he doesn't want try to fit a bunch of licks he wants right to play the song you know yeah and uh actually that album just came out like this last year that track is on there and i i uh it's a merle haggard song and uh I think about how scared I was while I was playing it because that was the take. It was probably one or two takes. That was it, not repaired or anything. And I guess it sounds okay, but boy, I, I know what I was going through at the time. Yeah. You know, and since then I've befriended all those people and I'm much more relaxed and it's a whole new world. But well, when you walk into a world like that, that was totally unlike Nashville. You know? Yeah. So what's coming up next for you? Are you, you Continuing to do sessions? Any any live work? Uh, not doing any live work at the moment. Uh, just I'm just doing sessions, doing overdubs from the house. Uh, it, you know, since the post-COVID thing, uh, work is really spotty. Sometimes I'll have uh, a week where there's really nothing, and then I'll have a week where I'm I'm just buried in overdubs. Or then I'll end up going uh, to Dan Arbach's and tracking for four days on a record. It's just, it's, it's all of the above. Yeah. And I've sort of uh, semi-retired from a lot of the demo work I had been doing, but I'm thinking of dipping my toes back into it because I miss my friends more than anything. Yeah. There's just a bunch of players, especially the younger guys that uh, I feel I'd like to be hanging around again. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. You've also kind of, besides the album that you've done, you've also sporadically kind of released, you know, songs on, on your right. YouTube channel. So people should check out. Yeah, your... yeah. What happened was uh, Paul Franklin called me up last year, said, do you want to come and play at my steel guitar camp? I said yes before thinking about it and then right. realized I do not play in front of steel players. I don't know steel guitar rag. I, 
never played a scripted note in my life. So I, I had four months to work on it, and I came up with 20 minutes worth of music that was completely scripted. And I made tracks and everything, and I went and played in front of 200 steel players, some of them world-class steel players. And it was, I guess it just shows that you can uh, do something new in your life. I'd never done that. That was out of my comfort zone. I had, I woke up in cold sweats, <laughs> dreaming that I had froze up in front of all these people. But I, uh, I actually got on uh, Itzhak Perlman's site, and he talked about how to practice, how to uh, uh, not over-practice, just all this stuff. And I really, I, I went into training for four months. And uh, uh, I actually went and pulled it off. You know, I, I I don't think I embarrassed myself. Let's right. put it that way. Right. So, but since then I've been recording instrumentals. I realize I can do that. Yeah. So every once in a while I pop one up on uh, YouTube. Yeah. One of the interesting things you've done is uh, I don't know if you're using a vocoder or what what you're yeah. doing, but but you will uh, you know have these tunes where uh, you know you have a you have a microphone and, uh -huh. and you're also controlling with the steel. You've done like uh, in the Beach Boys in my room, right, and, right, right. and uh, Skeeter Davis in yeah. the world. Those are those are some really interesting tracks, also. Well, that's another sort of homemade pickup. This is a uh, I took two uh, Roland G five hundreds. I don't remember what it is. It's a guitar synthesizer, you know, with the hex pickup. Yes. And I took two hex pickups, took them all apart because they're arched. Right. And they're all just individual little humbucking pickups. Each one of these is actually two coils. They wow. actually cancels the 60 cycle hum. And I epoxied them into a little piece of uh, aluminum channel, ran the wires <laughs> out, have a, a 13 pin connector underneath here. And then uh, Barry over at XTC, is it XTS? XTS, uh, took and uh, ganged two of the uh, synthesizer units together so I can use all 10 strings. And then I go through that using just a uh, sawtooth signal into a little uh, uh, electroharmonics vocoder. And so you can vocode it. Yeah. So, and it gets that, you know, sounds like a talk box. Yeah. But it's actually the vocoding, you can get more particular. And, you, and I also do uh, Hammond organ stuff. I've got some Hammond organ patches and a Leslie pedal and, and uh, so just trying, you know, basically I, I come up with a concept, try to think it through, then I try to actualize it. And what's great in this day and age is then you just make a little video of it and then you can put it up on YouTube and sort of forget about it. But it's, there's proof I did that. Right. You know? Just the fact that you can, you can create that and put it out there and it's not just something that, you know, because so many times in, in the past, you know, people would do these experiments, they would record it, and then it would, you know, because of the expense yes, of yeah. pressing things right, and right, distri right. distribution, now... It, <laughs> it's yeah. there. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I've never been into that for making money. I was yeah. never into playing guitar for money. You know, I just loved it, but I was lucky to make a living. But, uh, uh, so I do these things because it ain't about money. To me, it's about an artistic expression. Um, Years ago, Glenn Wharf, the, the bass player, cornered me at a Christmas party and said, There's something, will you take my advice? I said, what's that? And he said, you need, you're an artist. You're not just a, a, a hack, or hack session player. You're an artist. You need to start behaving more like an artist. Hmm. 
and that really meant a lot to me. And what do you think he meant by that? By, by I think like an uh, just go ahead and let your freak flag fly and uh, don't just worry about serving others in their commercial purposes. That's good, that pays the rent, right. but then that allows you to express yourself. Yeah. And so uh, I do now, I'm, you know, to me there's, it's just, this is an art, it's like making a painting or a sketch. You know, every idea. To me, they come to me in ideas, a little concept. And then, uh, like we say, we can do the proof of concept and put it up where anybody can see it. Right. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. It's, I like that. Yeah. Well, Russ, thank you so much for, oh, sure. for com thank coming you. down. It was an, it was an honor to uh, get, get to hear you play and, and tell your story. And uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.